You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a podcast exploring the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic and touching on all the important topics you need to know, well, according to two psychiatrists. And of course, like all things wonderful in this world, this is a Triple R production. Don't forget to subscribe. Hello and welcome to Shrink the Virus, podcast with myself, Steve Allen, and my good mate, Rob Seltzer. Today we're going to... Was that you saying hello? I thought I was saying hello. Shut up. Um, today, we're going to talk about kids and COVID. What about the kids? We're going to talk to an expert in paediatrics and infectious diseases, Associate Professor Mike Starr. Um, we like to do a bit of a timestamp so that you know what day we're recording this on in case anything happens. Today is Monday, April the 13th. G'day, Rob. 11-11, just in case things change in the next 10 minutes. Who knows? 11. Oh, the time. The yeah, time. what's happened today, by the way? What's happened? Give us some news. I know, I know um, Boris Johnson got out of ICU yesterday. And um, he and his partner were um, heaping praise on the NHS, which is incredibly well-deserved. Um, what else is news? Uh, state of emergency in Victoria is continuing, so I hear. Uh, we're not letting up with the uh, social distancing and all the other measures that we're doing. Although what I did hear, I think we were down to 53 new cases. Is that right, Steve, across Australia in the last 24 yeah. hours? Yeah, I the numbers once are pretty low. You know, ballpark, we're at about 6,000 cases, um, half of which have recovered and around about uh, 59, 60 have died. So 1% um, death rate currently, 50% have recovered. Um, that's our basic number across Australia. I don't know the breakdown. The majority are in, are in New South Wales, obviously. Mm. Um, what about you, man? What about your life? What's going on in your life? Mate, let me, <laughs> I've gotten to know my house very, very well. Doing, um, probably the thing I've been doing most is eating and then trying to exercise to uh, counteract all the eating. Because it's like, you know, when you're at work or when you're out of home, you're not always walking past a fridge <laughs> or a pantry. Every time I walk past my fridge, oh, have a few nuts. Oh, have some yogurt. Oh, there's a bit of pasta, um, a bit of pasta from last night. I'm going to have that. Da, 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 da. Not so, to mention the sedentary lifestyle. Oh, you know, at least when, you know, I mean, you and I work in hospitals. I mean, I'm walking all day. Yeah, I, yeah. Look, I sit down for an hour or two, but I'm walking all day. Yeah. Now I'm on my bum <laughs> of the day. Mind you, this is just <laughs> Easter for me. I mean, I'll be back at work tomorrow. My, my Apple Watch is complaining. I've got to do more walking. Um, and other things, oh, look, probably um, I'm noticing there's a bit more housework to be done because, uh, you know, there are four people in the house. So that's always, uh, you know, when you're home more, you, you, you kind of notice it more. So looking at that. And look, the big thing for me is I'm trying to transfer all my teaching from face-to-face -to, -face to online because one of the things I've noticed is that my gags, which work really well, you know, when people are in front of me, they just fall flat online. It's like watching, <laughs> it's, it's like watching all these comedy shows like Sean McAuliffe with no laugh line, you know, no yeah, like, soundtrack, no laugh track. Um, yeah, yeah. People don't know where to laugh because laughing is infectious. So when you're in a shoot, um, you know, if one person laughs, other people laugh. But because, you know, if I'm on a teleconference on Zoom, you know, everybody's mic is muted, so no one knows when to laugh. And I sit course, there laughing and I look like an idiot. Of course, it's completely possible that you're just not funny and that the only reason they laugh when you're in the room with them is because they're being polite because you're looking them in the eye. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hold up a little sign saying, laugh out of respect for your elders. Yeah, <laughs> what about you, man? What are you up to? Look, I did something. I mean, I, I, did, I did something a little bit, um, oh, not, what's the word, ominous? Not, I got my affairs in order. So, you know, I'd oh. done a will about... Okay. 
18 months ago, I did it because I interviewed a, a Wills and a state lawyer on radio and I thought, oh, I better get around to that. But I never got around, you know, I was lazy. Yeah. I filled it out, but I never got around to doing all the signing of everything, yeah. especially, you know, the, um, the power of attorney, the medical yeah. decision maker and all that sort of stuff. So with all this going on, I emailed my lawyers late last week and said, you know, I, the lawyer, lawyers makes me sound like, you know, I emailed the, the single lawyer that I employed to write my will and said, where's it all up to? And he said, well, you never got around to signing it, you dipshit. And he emailed it to me or, um, you know, the, the version with his, the, the basic stuff. And so I knocked all that on the head. I got my witnesses and everything signed. So if something goes wrong, I'm ready. So what, you left me the house? Yeah, yeah, you've got, you've got the house, but uh, don't That's get right. too excited. Don't get too excited at, at this stage. You know what, though? And enough of enough of all that stuff. Let's get on to our expert today. Um, as I mentioned at the uh, top, we've got Associate Professor Mike Starr joining us, infectious diseases uh, expert and paediatrician, and he's going to talk to us a bit about the kids. G'day, G'day Mike. Steve. G'day, Rob. Hey, um, you know, you know how we can tell you're a real doctor because you're wearing a stethoscope. <laughs> well, I, I am at work at the moment. Oh, we're interviewing you at work. No wonder you had a few technological problems joining us. Yeah, my work computer is stuffed. Am I allowed to say that? Um, and uh, yeah, I've, fine. I've moved into uh, someone else's office. It's all quiet here. No one's no one's here. Um, so I've moved into someone else's office and logged in and had to download Zoom and away I go. You're off. So, um, Mike, you're a kids doctor, a pediatrician, and you're also an infectious disease specialist. So you're well-placed to know how to talk to kids and the issues with kids and COVID. Tell us some of the things that kind of have, have struck you over the last couple of weeks in your job. Well, it's interesting, uh, you know, things have really changed quite dramatically, but in an unexpected, in unexpected ways, actually. Um, I mean, first of all, what we're seeing, what, what has been seen around the world, and that is that the kids don't seem to be um, affected by this virus uh, the way adults are, and we're not even sure they're being infected as much as adults. And and as a result of that, and as a result of the, the um, huge physical isolation that's going on and school closures and so on, we're quieter at the hospital than almost ever before. Um, that that's been great because it's enabled us to start doing planning, but it's uh, it's quieter than than I've ever known it to be at the hospital. Um, so th that's just an, a really interesting phenomenon that yeah. I don't think anyone expected. Um, it, it, you know, we're, we're looking at have, dealing with all many kids from around Melbourne who might become unwell and who normally would go to hospitals where they'll be looking after number of sick adults so there's lots of preparations going on for it to become extraordinarily busy but at the moment it's the calm before the storm it seems and i understand from um what i'm hearing around the traps that given that it's a little bit quieter some of the pediatric wards in general hospitals not the big pediatric hospitals like the children's and say monash but some of the wards have been closed to make way for more adult beds is that the case yeah so there are places around the state um, you know, some of the smaller paediatric services and even some of the larger ones like the Austin Hospital, for example, that has to change, have changed the way uh, they're looking after kids. They're looking after them in different places so that the, because the spaces that uh, are usually used for kids happen to be better located to be used as either um, new intensive care units or, or whatever. And in fact, there are a couple of hospitals where they've even closed down the paediatric service pretty much and have redeployed a lot of the junior doctors to look after adults. So 
um, in anticipation of kids being, uh, you know, the paediatric services being quieter, they've done that sort of thing, yeah. Mike, yeah, look, I've, I've heard about this, that kids tend to uh, not get infected as often as a possibility or certainly don't get as sick as adults. Is there a theory behind that as to why that happens? Uh, well, I mean, there are a, a few theories um, and, and, and certainly none are, are proven as yet. But um, in one, of the, one of the ideas is that kids are invariably infected by a number of other viruses. And although in adults we've seen that uh, people who have been co-infected with a couple of viruses seem to do worse, in children there's this notion that perhaps sort of the space is being crowded out by other viruses and other infections and that COVID isn't causing the problem that it is in adults. I mean, that, I'm not sure how plausible that is given that in adults it's actually seems worse if there are, there's more than one infection. Another, though, theory that is that the receptor for the virus, um, ACE receptors, which and there's been a lot of concern about the use of ACE inhibitors in adults um, because the receptor for the virus seems to be... Um, one that uh, children have less of in their respiratory tracts. And so that's another possible thing. So just to um, uh, get some detail on that, ACE is a particular protein that's expressed on a cell membrane, the receptor? That's right. And, and, it, and it, so it's a, a, um, a protein that's um, on the membranes of various cells in our body. Um, but in particular, in the respiratory tract, it seems to be the way in which the virus attaches to cells and then is able to invade and cause infection and why the respiratory tract seems to be the area where, that is particularly affected. Hmm. Can I flick you? I just want to ask you a more personal question because I'm aware that you work obviously in a mix of infectious diseases, general paediatrics and the emergency department. So you can't get too much more frontline than that. Are you scared at the moment? Are you worried about getting COVID? Um, look, you know, I don't want to sound... Um, like I've got a whole lot of bravado, but I'm not particularly concerned. I, I although I guess I'm at an age where I know that uh, it would seem around the world that people from mid mid fifties and on can get sicker than younger people. Um, I, I don't think that it's likely that I'm going to get severe infection. I, I, it seems to me, working in paediatrics, actually, that I'm more at risk of of being infected by the parents or co-workers that are that are you're my colleagues here. Um, but I just have a sense that uh, it's not going to, it's not likely to cause me severe infection. I'm reasonably healthy. And, you know, not that you want to really think about when's the best time to get this infection. But at the if I got it at the moment, I mean, the services are, you know, readily available. Um, we've got, uh, you know, in, in ICUs at Royal Melbourne and other hospitals that are um, half empty, ready to be used for when the, the worst hits. Um, so there'll be a, I'm sure, you know, a bed for me if I need it. Um, I guess the one thing we, we, we're not quite sure about um, how to treat this infection if you get really sick. I mean, there's a, a few number of trials going on, but the, that's one thing. I suppose if you got sicker later in the piece that uh, you might be, um, more, there might be more likely to be a, a, a treatment that we know about. But, but no, I'm not, I'm not really worried. I mean, I guess my main concern, like many people, is that I might get infected. And even if I don't get terribly sick, that I might, unwittingly pass it on to, to people I care about, you know, family and friends. And not, not that I'm seeing many people, but just, you know, I'm staying away from my elderly parents, but, you know, that's the more of the concern I have personally. Mike, um, you mentioned there are some treatments, which is different to a vaccine, which is a prevention. Uh, we've been hearing 
a bit in the news lately about some of those potential medications. Could you just briefly take us through them and and and, and sort of how they work? Sure. Um, well, there, there have been a, a number of different medications that um, I think actually in some ways people have happened upon as, as possibilities and then others where there's been a sort of a plausible reason that they've gone to these medications. And I guess one of the first, and many people have heard about hydroxychloroquine, which is a medicine that's been used in the past for malaria and also for various connective tissue, you know, rheumatological disorders. And um, no one's actually, I mean, so that's a, an anti-parasitic medication, not an antiviral medication, but appears to have some sort of anti, non, more non-specific anti-inflammatory um, properties and does seem to have some properties against this virus. Um, in anecdotal reports, but mm -hmm. um, as yet there are not good enough studies to show whether or not um, it is. Although Trump has gone and bought up truckloads for the people in the US, no one's certain whether it actually is uh, a medication that's going to make a difference. There's been um, talk about it being used as a preventative medication as well as a treatment. There certainly is next to no evidence that prevention is uh, is affected by using it. Um, it may have some um, Affect it for treatment, but we're not certain. Then there's a number of the, uh, there are some antivirals drugs that have been used anti-HIV drugs, um, and so it's sort of been thought well if they work for HIV retroviruses. These are different types of viruses, but nonetheless they might work. And so there's uh, a couple of anti-retroviral anti-HIV drugs that have been um, used, and again without um, there there have been some anecdotal reports. Um, so just, you know, we've gotten the, the reports without having evidence of trying one thing against another. We've got anecdotal reports that, that there's been some benefit. Um, and then there's some antibiotics and, and other medications too, and, and some anti-immune function medications that seem to, to um, modify the immune response to the virus. And it, it does seem like it's the immune response to the virus that might be the big thing that's killing people. So yeah, modifying that response is also a target. That's interesting. Um, yeah, we're hearing a lot of people talking about that immune response, you know, occurring around about whatever, day 8, 9, 10, 11, mm -hmm. and the need to control that. So, you know, that's one of the things that I also think to myself that, you know, it might be better, you know, it's the longer you put off getting COVID, the better, because some of those treatments we better known i want to ask you something though that's a bit closer to home we hear in the newspapers in the last day or two that the schools are reopening and uh, um, in particular for the children of healthcare workers but not for everyone else so people are being told keep your kids at home but those who need to send their kids to school to get to keep um, hospitals open and other essential services telecommunications whatever they can send them but there's going to be a little bit of choice involved now obviously we're all going to follow government guidelines obviously but nevertheless i wouldn't mind you know at this early stage getting your thoughts on what are the pros and cons of sending your kids to school if you're sitting home thinking look i could work from home i'm a healthcare worker i could work from home but i'll need to go someday should i send my kids what are the pros and cons well, look, it is a tricky, tricky one, and it's uh, obviously complex. And and you're you're right. I guess the, as you just said, we do need to follow the rules. And so, in places where they've closed schools, I guess that's that's is as it is. But my personal view is that there are pros and cons, and that there are a number of pros of keeping schools open. As a matter of fact, um, I think that 
uh, and I, I guess I'm thinking about children and their needs and educational needs and so on. Um, I think that given what we were talking about before, the children are quite possibly not becoming um, infected or affected as much as adults. Um, them all being together uh, in one place is not necessarily a bad thing, giving it to each other. It may, a transmission may not occur, first of all, and even if it does, um, it's unlikely that anyone's going to get sick. I guess those at risk might be elderly teachers, mm. um, but yeah. it, I guess one could continue having schools opened with some of the elderly teachers staying away. Um, I guess I'm... Especially because um, they'll only need to have a quarter of the normal teachers or half, so they can right. obviously favour the younger ones. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, that's right. So, so I think that ought to be doable. One of the things, having spoken to a few teachers, though some of the older teachers are less familiar with doing online teaching and are finding a different... I spoke to a couple of friends just in the last week or so who said they were finding it really tricky doing the online teaching because it just wasn't their sort of thing to do. Um, I guess I, I think that school is a safe haven for a number of children too. We've got a lot of kids in the community who, um, you know, their homes aren't the safest places to be. Um, their homes don't have um, perhaps um, reliable Wi-Fi, so they're going to miss out on schooling if they don't get to school. So I'm not just thinking of the kids of healthcare workers, but many others who I think there's a real um, need for some school places to be open for them. Um, and it's not just healthcare workers. There are a lot of other people who need to be working, are working from home and can't work effectively if their kids are underfoot and, um, and nor can they really help them with their teaching, perhaps their education. And so uh, that's another reason I think some of those kids of those families ought to be able to get to school. There's obviously huge social and economic costs of schools closing and, and I'm not clever enough to know what the, the balance is, but it is interesting to note that there was a big, um, report from Imperial College in the UK that looked at the pros and cons of a number of strategies. And they, in their modelling, they actually showed there would be an excess of deaths if schools closed. Now, that was at a point in time several weeks ago, and I don't know whether it would still be the case. There are a number of factors, but it's certainly not black and white to close schools. Mm. Um, yeah, there's so much modelling around, isn't there? <laughs> you hear of all these different organizations and they've got different mathematical models and they all start off their models, I presume, not being a modeler myself, with different assumptions. And, you know, and then they multiply up those assumptions to a population level. And uh, is it possible that we have these different models for different, predicting different things because those assumptions are just slightly different at the start? You know, like if you say that the vir that one person can infect three people compared to one person infects 2.9 people, you multiply that up, that creates a difference in the model. I mean, that's my very basic understanding of why the different models predict different things. Yeah, well, uh, Rob, I'm not an expert in modelling either, but, I, I, right. that's, <laughs> but that's been, you know, that's my concern. I share your concern. Yeah. I think the thing yeah. is that uh, um, we all, or, or, you know, everyone, let alone scientists, have their biases. And so when they begin with their assumptions, of course they do, they, they make those assumptions in the best uh, of faith and, the, and sure. based on the best information that they have. Sure. But it's clear to me that uh, we're hearing various um, modelling, um, you know, results and they're, they're, they're different. So there must be some different assumptions in the first place. I'm sure they're all good at what they do and are yes, using yes, the sure. maths correctly, but it's the assumptions <laughs> in the first place, as you say. And that's, again, why I guess the best thing that we can do is listen to the, the modelers who are providing information to the health department and just yep. accept it. They're doing the best they can. We've got to take that on face value. 
You know what worries me? I'll tell you what, on this particular topic, I agree there's a lot of uncertainty around the science because the health science is being guided by mathematical modelers combined with epidemiologists who understand the spread of illness in a community, public health officials who understand health at a community level rather than individual level, and infectious disease experts who understand the actual disease. Now, on top of that, that's got to be balanced against the economists who are saying the costs of shutdown, the cost of this industry, the cost of that industry, what's the effect of closing the schools versus the effect of closing non-essential businesses? You know, and they've got in mind the long-term effects to our lifestyle and poverty and homelessness and the deaths that can result from that. Now, those two balancing up, I'm totally fine with. I recognise there's uncertainty and it could go anywhere. The bit that scares me is when the politicians start imposing their political beliefs. Now, so far, certainly at a federal level, I reckon they've been pretty damn good at following the experts. Yeah. But I'm a little bit concerned that, well, not so much in Australia, you're certainly seeing it in the US where it's a free-for-all, where ideologies... You know, so the political influences are coming in and saying, I more value this than that. And that's where I'm going to go. You know, we've had our prime minister saying this is not a time for ideology. Um, I'm scared that the politicians will come in and stuff the whole thing up by not listening to the experts and following ideologies rather than uh, following advice. That's where my fear comes in. Well, but as you say, so far in Australia, much as, uh, you know, I haven't necessarily been a fan of Scott Morrison. I think that he and his government are doing a pretty good job, and and Brendan Murphy and the you know the the health experts and Paul Kelly and so on they seem to be you know delivering pretty um, clear messages and and as difficult as it is, it's clear to follow what they feel we ought to be doing, and we just need to trust in that, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm happy with the way they've gone so far. It's just a, like a nagging fear. Yeah, Mike, to uh, to just switch topics a bit, um, the idea of a vaccine was held out as a great hope and we still hold it out as a great hope but just recently in the papers some people have been coming forward saying look you know let's not put all our eggs in one basket can you tell us look, some of the issues about developing a vaccine because as i said to you <laughs> yesterday it can't be that hard you get the virus you chuck it in some formaldehyde turn on the blender bingo bango bombo you you got your vaccine, surely. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. I, I think that you ought to go into um, vaccine production, Rob. Um, <laughs> well, there's a reason I'm in psychiatry, Mike. <laughs> How big's your blender, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, it, needless to say, um, there is a huge complexity in developing vaccines, particularly for viruses um, and viruses like uh, coronaviruses and influenza virus, where they are such changeable viruses with the the strains there are an enormous number of strains and try to trying to develop um a vaccine is often around uh, it, it's specific to a particular strain and won't be effective the next time round. and that's i think in this case there's a, a real attention to the fact that they want to look at find, developing a vaccine that may not be just strain specific because i uh, you know although this particular sars cov2 strain is is terrible you know there's a fear that there'll be some change in that strain through the next months and that we'll need to have a vaccine that will actually be uh, effective against uh, more than just that strain um the other thing is that you know as they develop vaccines even where there would be a huge imperative to to, to get to a vaccine that's available um at the public level uh, very quickly 
it, there still needs to be great rigour with, with which they develop the vaccine, test the vaccine and so on. And, and that process for most vaccines is a, a minimum of 12 months and often several years. Mm. Um, so I think... We that, don't have any vaccines against any other coronaviruses yet, do we? Against no. the original ones, MERS and SARS and et cetera, et cetera. No, we don't. So we, we don't... We don't um, uh, you know, so it's not likely that there's going to be a vaccine really in, in a, a, a very quickly and, and most likely will be 12 to 18 months, if at all. And therefore, there, there need to be other strategies. I mean, well, certainly, uh, you know, we need to, to be continuing to um, look, go down that path. But at the same time, there needs to be work going on the treatments and there needs to be consideration given to other ways of the the. Um, the you know a large number of the population becoming immune. Mike, I'm now thinking of just the issue of if a parents have their children and they have COVID in the next, you know, three, six months, hopefully they don't get it. But if they do get it, what are your tips for parents who are managing kids at home with COVID? Should they think of it like the flu? Or is there anything special should they should be doing? What are your thoughts? Well, look, it, it does appear to be much more transmissible than the flu. So I guess from an infection control point of view, um, one would say that you need to be a lot more careful um, than, um, than previously we said was the case with the flu. Um, it's difficult to know what to say, though, within a family setting. I mean, it's impossible for, um, although even in the paper this morning, there's pictures of people who are living within one house and they've put up plastic sheets between one part of the house and the other, and they're you know they're sort of isolating within their own home from their family members. That's not really a practicable thing to do with young children. So I guess it depends on the age of the kids. But if you've got young kids, it's not going to be possible to yeah. care for those children um, without having some physical contact with them. Um, so I, it seems to me that washing hands is the number one thing that is important in in uh, trying to reduce the spread. Clearly, it's a, there's also droplets and things that aerosolise the virus uh, concerning. So people are coughing and all the things that have been in, in the papers and uh, on, you know, on the internet, it's been quite clear to say coughing and sneezing into, the, into your elbow and, and so on, using tissues and then throwing them away. Um, so all of those things that we're recommending for everyone would be certainly important within a family unit. But I, I would suggest that it's difficult to, to care for young kids um, effectively without having some physical contact. And then other than that, what, just the usual Panadol for fevers and pain, um, keep fluids up, uh, bed rest, <laughs> let them watch as much TV as they like for a week or two, just the usual? Oh, and, and so in terms of caring for the kids in that regard, yes. So if, the, if they um, have a, a viral illness, um, look, it, it might be COVID, they're very unlikely to become unwell. So the usual rules apply of of yes, using symptomatic things, fluids and paracetamol and ibuprofen, um, and if they become more unwell, and I guess as we as you were talking about before, we know that sort of about day eight to ten when people become more unwell, um, if if a child was still febrile and becoming more unwell, then they ought to be obviously seen by someone. Um, but hopefully, with children, it does seem like they deal with it like uh, they do any other common cold. Mike, this is a question that we ask all our guests, given that you're our first guest. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> lying. Um, what's one thing that you th you're doing better now since COVID? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that, um, you know, that I guess 
there, every, you hear lots of people saying how, how much better they're doing all sorts of things and having meetings more effectively and so on. And I, and I guess that's true for me too. But I think that I'm probably prioritising better um, at the moment uh, just because I, I have to, I, I feel like I'm busier than, than ever, um, but I'm just having to be really organised. But I'm, I feel like I'm normally pretty organised, but really organised about how I do things because because I'm doing everything so differently. And um, so a bit. Of, so I think, yeah, I think I'm trying to be more organised. I think I'm doing that better. And, and also just uh, I'm, my attention to self-care, I normally don't um, I do a bit of exercise and so on, but I don't think about that too much, I'm trying to do that better. Hey, uh, Mike, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Thanks for taking us through everything. Um, you know, best wishes and stay safe at your hospital. Um, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure and, uh, and a pleasure being on this podcast and good luck with it. Thanks, Thank mate. you. Bye. Cheers. So that was Mike Starr, Associate Professor, Paediatrician at the uh, Children's Hospital and an expert in infectious diseases. And uh, don't forget to tell your friends if you enjoyed the podcast and subscribe. Don't forget we've got a Facebook page called Shrink the Virus. I also have a website with information around these topics called steveallen.com. And uh, don't forget to tune into 3RRR, in particular our show every Sunday at 10 a.m. Radiotherapy. And we've got to say thank you to the fine people at uh, RRR. And that's Beck, Mia, Grace and Michael for helping us to put this together. And don't forget, we actually have an email address, which is shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. If you want to send us some questions, tell us how something about the virus, let us know. See you next time. Cheers. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.